we'll take that cheese and I'll get our motion graphics guys to like make that a DVD that he's putting in. And my boss at the time was like, no, it's funny that it's a slice of cheese. Welcome to The Cutdown, a podcast all about the art of trailer editing. This is episode number 31. I'm Derek Liu. And I'm Rick Thomas. And today we're going to be talking about our very first trailers that we've made. These are going to be the first trailers that shipped, because if we want to talk about very, very first, then we'll have to go back to my fan trailers. And I'm sure you probably have some stuff that you've done in the past before your your first finish. Yeah, in the closet, buried. Before we start with that, you just shared with me this new trailer for Dear Evan Hansen. So why did you? Why did this trailer come up for you? Oh, it was just interesting. I, I watched it because I'm a, I'm a huge fan of musicals. Um, and I'd heard that this was like a really big deal on Broadway with um, Ben Platt a couple of years ago. And um, apparently it was amazing and it was, it was great if you could catch a ticket to it. Um, but I never saw it, I never listened to it or anything. So I was really keen to watch this trailer as soon as it came up. I'm not entirely sure that I knew they were making a movie of it. I know that Universal for years had had the rights to Wicked and were trying to do that. And, um, and I guess maybe in the COVID production shuffle or whatever, you know, the, the fact that this was going to be a thing just kind of escaped my attention. So it's quite rare for something to pop up for me that I'm like, oh, I didn't really have an idea this was coming up. So I was super excited to check it out. Dear Evan Hansen, today is going to be an amazing day and here's why. And it's a really good trailer. It's really interesting. It's great. Um, a lot of people are doing the kind of hey fellow kids meme for Ben Platt because he's 27 playing a 17 year old. And I assume when the musical came out, he was maybe a 22 year old playing. But um, I mean, I'm glad that they kept that original casting. Um, and I didn't know the story of it at all either. Like the story kind of looks darker than I thought. And they do a lot of work to get the story out there. Like, you know, there's a lot of dialogue considering it's a musical. And that was the biggest um, question that I kind of had after it, really, because musical trailers are interesting because I feel like the public goes in waves of appreciating the musical form and then like kind of not appreciating the musical form. And I think in the past we've talked about maybe the Sweeney Todd trailers when they came out because that's Sondheim, so that's heavily um, music all the way through. Um, kind of hiding the fact maybe that it was a musical or maybe putting one line in sync. But my bigger point here is that this trailer takes a long time to get to the point where he sings. And it's kind of organic. He's on a stage, so it kind of happens. But I, I wonder if people could potentially be a little blindsided by the fact that it's a musical at that stage. And then it kind of goes quite heavy with the musical copy after that point, you know, from the songwriters of and from the, from the director of. So without posing a question, that's what I, what I think about it. How did it, how did it feel to you? I, I said, oh, this trailer's come out, uh, come out and you watched it just before uh, the pod. So, so kind of what was your reaction to it? I, I probably should have asked you not to tell me anything about it before I started watching it. So I went in knowing that it was going to be about two minutes before I started seeing. I was also expecting, based off your description, a trailer which completely hid that it's a musical. But there are lyrics in the music during that first two minutes and that ends up being the song that he starts singing at that two minute mark. Have you ever felt like nobody was there? Um, no one's on your cast. Now we can both pretend we have friends. 
I'm sorry about my brother. Have you ever felt forgotten in the middle of nowhere? I wish everything was different. I wish I was part of something. I wish that anything I said mattered. Oh yeah, good point. Yeah, they are. Yes, they are kind of already in the in the world of musical songs. Yeah, I suppose it's not it, like yeah, and it's and it's lyrics and it's a kind of song. It's not a pop song necessarily. It's, it feels musical. It's not the sort of lyrics where it's like, you know, the dark cover song or the 80s song or something like that. It draws attention to lyrics in a way where I think it might not be completely surprising that it's a musical. But um, I, I'm glad that you explained uh, his age because I was spending a lot of this trailer wondering if it was a plot point that he's so old and in high school. <laughs> I was thinking like, oh, wait, is this about someone who got held back or something like that? And it's like, cause he doesn't look like a teenager, but that makes a lot of sense if they just kept the original casting. I mean, you know, historically, most high school students a while ago were played by like people in their 30s. So, you know, this is just a callback to that, even though, you know, obviously people I think are uh, more kind of reflective now in, in the casting. And um, I don't think you really probably for the fans could have cast it with anyone else but um yeah it's kind of interesting i guess my biggest question was i wonder what would have happened if they had landed one of those lyrics earlier um just to kind of say you know this is this is the guy singing it. it's a very sweeney todd thing you know it's, it's have one one lyric of johnny depp in in sync and then kind of carry on or you know started with a song but then you don't want to see people leaving around the cafeteria. I don't know. It's um, it's kind of, it's uh, it's an interesting point, and it's a great trailer. I just thought it was an interesting when potentially some of the audience is turned off by a musical and would rather see a kind of dramatic story. Um, do you do that, or do you embrace it and you come out singing and dancing from the off and just say, hey, this is what it is. It's a musical, and it's got a great story, and it's going to be better because it's a musical. You know, it's an interesting. Um, Mix. I mean, the cynical part of me says they saved him singing on screen until two minutes because they knew that by percentages, only a certain number of people would actually get that far. So maybe a bunch of people will be convinced that they want to see the movie from the first two minutes and then they stopped watching and they said, okay, that's enough. I don't need to see anymore. I don't know if they would actually do something like that. I mean, maybe it's got a great, it's got a great supporting cast anyway. I mean, you know, Julianne Moore, Amy Adams. But I mean, I'm not the one who is doing focus group testing and all these sorts of uh, market research things. But, you know, from what little I know, I would think that's better to go gung ho on your actual target audience, because I mean, a lot of people like musicals. And if you can just get them in there and that's enough, then that's probably okay. Rather than having to maybe not necessarily trick people who don't like musicals, but sort of lie by omission. I don't know. It's it's a tricky question. And obviously, all these movies have a lot of money at stake when the, they're made, especially, you know, who knows right now how the box office is going to be when this movie comes out, which I don't remember did this say when it comes out, September 24th, only in theaters. So who knows? Yeah, but I mean, you look at something like In the Heights, and I don't, you know, again, I, I don't know within the Heights whether you could hide what it was, but that's so kind of forthright and jumping into the Lin-Manuel Lin Miranda of it all and so energetic and musical and rhythmic um, that you're right, it just kind of embraces what it is and, and they're not trying to hide the fact that it's a musical and, you know. And equally West Side Story, actually, I can't remember what the West Side Story trailer did 
in terms of singing. I think it was just kind of, actually no one was in sync in that. It was just kind of shots and um, dialogue. But it was, again, that was a very, that was a very story light teaser trailer because it was just announcing, you know, a lot of people know what West Side Story is. So Yeah, the West Side Story trailer from my memory, it's, it feels exactly like what it is, which is like a modern remake of a classic and they're trading heavily on the iconic imagery of the first one and the the sort of familiar tropes even if you haven't seen the film you probably absorbed some just through cultural osmosis and but they did have the some music in there as sort of like like a trailer climax sort of thing is a place for us somewhere a place for us Whereas, like Sweeney Todd's trailer, when they start singing, it feels like sort of like middle of the trailer sort of story points. It's like, okay, this is going to be going on from here until the end, probably, as opposed to just like, you know, for the finale. All right, you sir. No one's in the chair. Come on, come on. Sweeney's waiting. I want you, bleeders. You sir. Two sir. Welcome to the grave. I will have vengeance. I will have salvation. So yeah, so today we wanted to talk about um, our first traders and it's an idea that kind of came up organically. I was kind of thinking about uh, the lessons you learn and when you look back on stuff that you've done, either like, oh wow, that was really good or like, oh my God, that was terrible. So, um, so I thought it was really interesting. And we don't often talk about work that we've done but I figured that the statute of limitations on trailers for movies that are movies and games and bits of media that have been out for 15 to 17 years is probably okay now. So uh, it's a good excuse for us to, to talk about what we, what we, where we started and what we've learned, hopefully, along the way. Um, so Derek, do you want to um, tell me about your kind of early journey or a piece of, you know, piece of work that you did at the start? Sure thing. Uh, So the first work that I got to do that actually got finished, uh, it was for the home video campaign for Constantine, the film starring Keanu Reeves, which is based off the comic books. Um, I got to do a 90 second sizzle trailer. And I think I ended up finishing like, what, like two, like one 20 second spot and a few 15 second spots. So that was the first time I was exposed to all the like market research stuff from that. But yeah, the, the 90 second one, it's basically one of those sort of DVD advertisements where it's saying like, oh, check out all the special features that are on this DVD. Constantine comes to DVD on a two disc deluxe edition with exclusive collectible comic book. I had to integrate the interviews and the, the movie footage all together. And so since the company I worked for did the official teaser and trailer for the theatrical release of Constantine, uh, I basically could piggyback my editing off of those. Oh, I was going to say, did you get finished materials? But obviously you did if it was the same, it was the same company. Yeah, I had finished materials and I think that they were also cropped to four by three, which I think it's a two, three, five movie. Um, so yeah, the, the, the opening bit is taken straight from the trailer and they already knew basically the, the, the hero shots from the movie that I should show. Sure about this? No. 
the lessons that I learned from that or just the prompts that I got from um, the producer I worked with, who was our, our post supervisor at the time, he was doing some home video work. To this day, I just remember the thing he told me was just like, make sure that the dialogue and the sound effects and the music butt up against each other. Like he was just saying like no dead air, basically. And that is the thing that I took from that. And it was a little bit nerve wracking too, because I remember getting the split audio tracks. So since the film was already finished, you had like the, the movie sound effects and the you know dialogue all separate and didn't have to worry about temporary sound or anything like that. But the thing that I remember is how empty a lot of the shots felt uh, in terms of their audio, like I, I was getting nervous because I would have these whole sections of my trailer where it's a cool shot, but like in the background, I felt like there's there wasn't anything in there. I'm like, oh my God, does this sound terrible? Should there be like tons and tons of sound effects? Should I be adding in sound effects for every little thing? So I got, I remember being like really nervous that uh, I had like any dead air, not necessarily just because of the uh, direction that I got, but because it was one of my first time just hearing all those audio stems and realizing that there's just so much going on in trailers that either I was imagining or was actually true. And somehow I needed to fill that out, which I'm not sure I actually really did. Um, there's this one part of the trailer where it's Rachel Weiss waking up and like breathing in because she just had a nightmare. Close your eyes. Whatever happens, don't look. It felt so empty. I'm like, oh my God, is this, is this terrible? <laughs> um, but the, the parts that I liked were um, some of the, the visual syncing to the music. There's this one shot where he like, Keanu Reeves spins like the barrel of his like holy rifle gun thing. It's like a Tommy gun. And one of the senior editors said like, oh, that's a really cool sync moment. And I was like, oh, really? Cool. And so like pretty much that's the only part of the trailer I pay attention to now. I wait for that one part that was validated by one of the senior editors. I think the film's an extraordinarily good translation. I like it. You got a, there's a kind of punch to explosion in there, which was very like mid 2000s. What year was this? Was this like 2005? Yeah, 2005, I think. Yeah, there there's a shot where he punches the camera with his brass knuckles and then some demon, you know, catches fire in a separate shot. And you got a chance to use uh, Howard Parker for the voiceover here? Yes, Howard Parker, trailer narrator. Um, which I'm sure you've said this before, but there are many, many trailer narrators, but Howard Parker is one of the most pl uh, prolific, especially at that time. I got to direct him for the first time, and that was a lot of fun. I mean, he's a professional, so he made it very easy. It was usually just a matter of, like, a little bit faster, a little bit slower, or hit a particular word in a certain way. Um, and at that point, I'd already been in the control room a lot, just watching people direct the either Howard or another trailer narrator. It wasn't really too difficult, but it was very, very exciting. I mean, I always wanted to listen to any of the voice sessions just because it's hilarious to hear trailer narrators say like not trailer things, <laughs> just to just to converse and shoot the breeze. Yeah. So how do you feel looking back at it now? Are you embarrassed by it or are you like, oh, okay, this this was kind of you know, this was this was okay. And what like lessons do you think? Like you've already mentioned the dead air thing, but do you think there are other lessons that you've you've taken from that experience throughout your career? Um, I'm not. I don't really think I'm embarrassed by any of this. Um, I I still remember a lot of these these cuts and the decisions that went behind them. Like 
I there's this one shot where there's like a VFX supervisor talking on screen and uh, he's totally not saying the words that you hear him saying in that shot but we wanted him on screen and I just remember the entire time thinking like ah oh, his lip sync doesn't match and the producer just like it's fine <laughs> we are creating the entire city of Los Angeles as if it were in hell oh that's fine so it's a talking head because that's how that must be hard to cheat sync so it's a talking head but he's not saying what yeah it was just like either the beginning or the end of of that clip or the line where we just overlapped him for like a half a second. But every time I look at it, I'm like, oh, yeah, totally. That didn't match. And there's this one line from um, the director, Francis Lawrence, which is stitched together from two lines that they don't really make entire, really good sense. One of the things that I wanted to do with this movie was really try and set it in a reality. That was just a fantastic learning experience for me. Doesn't really make a whole lot of sense as one complete sentence, but some reason we just, I think we just needed a good talking head moment with the director. It was probably the best of what we could cobble together uh, based off of the material. It's funny that you can learn just by the merit of doing this Constantine DVD release sizzle, you know, um, trailer, which is very salesy, you can still identify key facets of trailer editing in there. You know, syncing shots. What do I do if I have a shot and I have like some sound design there? How, how do I go from a bit of dialogue to a bit of voiceover to, you know, and what shots can I match? And can I cheat sync and can I cobble two lines together? Like there's a lot of stuff there just by merit of cutting something in a trailer way that are kind of tools of, of the trade. Yeah, and also making the most of what visuals you have because a lot of these behind the scenes features didn't have sort of motion graphics or something about themselves that make good B-roll. So I think every single one of these behind the scenes features um, had like a little bit of a motion graphic uh, for itself. Like there's one called Conjuring Constantine and you see it in like a sort of a two and a half D motion comic style. And I, I used every single one of those because I just needed to show something because a lot of the footage maybe was just footage from the movie and it wouldn't differentiate itself from actual footage from the movie. And I just needed stuff that looked like it was providing something new or uh, novel because it's like, oh, here's a render of this scene, but you can tell that has no textures on it. It's really primitive looking. So um because I know that for me, for behind the scenes stuff, I want to see stuff look as unfinished as possible uh, to see the whole process. I'm guessing like, a lot of what I did was just take the teasers and trailers and just take their the, the order that the shots came in in those ones and just have them pretty much match up to how I did it. So like, you know, I didn't take a shot from early in the trailer and put it later in my trailer just because... And I think that, you know, the editors before me already figured out a good order. So I'm just going to try to piggyback off of that and uh, make it uh, punchy. Yeah, I was going to say this has a nice kind of almost cold open moment before it kind of launches it, like a moment of the, of the film before it launches into the sales E. Howard Parker thing. But you're saying that that actually wasn't you. That was what they did in the trailer anyway. Yeah, that's the full trailer, totally. There's, there's, there are very few shots in this that aren't in the official trailers. There's like a shot where someone's holding this like ancient dagger, which I think, I think that wasn't in the trailer. But most of this stuff was just like shots that I've been seeing in 
probably finishes that I had been prepping tracks for as the assistant editor. You know, I, I am sure I looked at all the, the previous things I did for theatrical and I'm like, okay, well, this shot cuts well into this shot and this shot cuts well into this shot. So I'm just going to do that. And this was cutting on Avid back then? What were you cutting on film, reel to reel? No, this was cut on Avid Express. So we had uh, like one or two stations where we were experimenting with this new technology called digital video tape. <laughs> so all the other machines were like the really old Mac OS 9 beige Macintosh computers with like really old Avid drives. Um, and we were just trying this Avid Express one. It was like the only computer with Mac OS X at the time. And so we thought, okay, we'll use this sort of like as an experiment to, to kick the tires on this to see if we can use it for our other uh, like bigger projects. But I mean, Avid Express is less fully featured than Media Composer. And I'm sure it doesn't even exist anymore at this point. So your first trailer turns out is also kind of DVD related or actually very DVD related. Please, please share. Yeah, I wouldn't class this. Well, I would class this as my first trailer. It's so interesting. Um, so we were, I was a tape operator at Empire Design in London. And I think kind of like you were saying with the tech there, we actually were, they were contemplating a move to Final Cut Pro at the time because Avid was still expensive and Avid hadn't proposed a software solution yet. So they were like, oh, maybe we could do Final Cut Pro. And this job came in and it was for the DVD release of a kid's TV show. I think I got given it as a kind of experiment to see what I could do because it was quite low stakes. What's the name of the show? Yeah, so the name of the show is Rhubarb and Custard 2, which is a sequel to like a 70s, very hand-drawn, lo-fi, sweet kind of um, TV show about, I think, a cat and a dog. I didn't really watch much of the show at the time, but it's narrated by this this classic of, of um, this guy called Richard Bryars, who was a, a kind of hallowed figure from British TV in the 70s and he narrated this like kind of like Ringo Starr used to narrate Thomas the Tank Engine he um he narrated this show and I think he did the voices for the uh for the cat and the dog and also the narrator as well and so we got the show in and we were tasked with making a trailer for the DVD release and the copywriter who I was working with at the time um I think the idea came from him, this guy called Tom Lewis. And he said, well, let's make the trailer like it's a mini episode of the show. Um, so I wouldn't be talking about this other than the fact that actually this could be the roots of a really interesting thing that I like to do with trailers, which is tr to try and do something different. And instead of just kind of going, oh, you know, catch all episodes of this TV show on the DVD and there's this episode and this episode the whole thing is constructed like a little mini episode so it says you know one day Rhubarb and Custer the Cat were gonna make a DVD of all of their adventures. It was a bright and spangly morning and Rhubarb was thinking very hard about all the brilliant inventions he had made in his shed. What I need for Rhubarb is a DVD so I can watch all my adventures whenever I want. He's finally gone barking mad, Grin Custard. And that's kind of how it's how the, how the whole thing is framed. Um, 
and it's a bit ridiculous, but, but there were so many things that I did in the process there because I was very keen and, and the copywriter that I was working with like, was really into the project as well. I think we were both kind of looking for, for a, a, a chance. And there were so many fun things that I did in that. I'm actually, you know, even though it's ridiculous, I'm really proud of, you know, I had to kind of take some shots of the episodes. We always talk about in making trailers how you're breaking down the different parts of the jigsaw into its constituent parts so you can start making connections between different bits. And that's what I was doing here. I was like, okay, well, there's a shot in this episode of something that looks like a DVD, so I could use that. And then there's someone watching something on a TV, so I could use that as like, the characters are watching their adventures on a, on a TV, and I can picture in picture some of those episodes onto the TV. Um, and it's all on a white background, so I can key some shots and put char- introduce other, di- other different characters. And all of this stuff about kind of creating a new narrative out of these things. And there was a bit where, uh, one of these episodes was about a mouse fixing a computer and he put a bit of cheese into a computer. And I was like, oh, well, I'll we'll take that cheese and I'll get our motion graphics guys to like make that a DVD that he's putting in. And my boss at the time was like, no, it's funny that it's a slice of cheese that goes into the computer because it's ridiculous and surreal. And then like they're watching the thing on the, the TV, but like, so I put like a TV EQ on the music while they're watching it. There were just some kind of, to your point about the kind of about the Constantine thing, I think there were elements that I did there just by merit of having to create this thing that are intrinsically things you do as a trailer editor. And because because I have this kind of story narrative front, and then I kind of go into a more salesy back end. So it's almost like you know it's kind of like a cold open or starting in a scene, even though it's a scene we've constructed. Um, and we got the voiceover guy. We wrote, and I think I did the first, the temp VO track. And then we got the guy in, we got the legend, the TV legend came into the voiceover booth and I had to put him in like this old rickety lift to take him to the top of the building up to this one final cut suite. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry about them. So, you know, terrible. And then, but he was amazing to work with. And I was like, oh, you know, it's like my first job. I was like six months into the job and I was working with like, like this, this legend. Um, and so it's ridiculous and not many people will have seen it and it's for a DVD release of, of, of something, but I'm, uh, as my first piece, I'm very proud of it. And I think that it kind of, the, 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 the way of looking at it and doing something different with it kind of set me along that path of trying to do that in everything I do. So I owe everything to the DVD release of Rhubarb and Custard 2. I mean, it's really well done. I, when, after I watched it, I, I, I did think to myself, like, wait, they, they couldn't have made an episode where they're actually talking about a DVD and stuff. And there were parts of it I, didn't, I couldn't tell if they were made uh, by either you or someone else at the company. Like, the, there's a shot where there's, like, a spinning disc inside a thought bubble. Like, that's one of the only ones where I thought, that maybe could have been inserted, but... Also, it's like a weird shape sort of in line with the, the show. So I thought maybe that's taken from somewhere, but maybe in like After Effects. Oh, yeah, the speech bubble, the, the spinning, yeah, the spinning disc was not in the speech bubble. In fact, I'm not even sure that the thought bubble was there. That was one of the things that we did. So having made that kind of cartoon spinning disc, I was like, oh, we can put it in that other thing. But yeah. But I didn't even question it, really. I was just, I was just like, oh, uh, like, this doesn't, 
look edited, which in, I think is flattering in, in a certain way, because if you don't notice editing, then it just feels natural. Um, and then when I went back in, I was looking for the cheats, but it, it did it did feel like an episode. So I think it's it's well done. The other question I had was there's this one shot where like a disc flies out of the computer and then smashes on the ceiling. That's just in the episode. Oh, yeah, it was a it was like a saw blade. It was a, for some reason, I don't know why there's a kid's, it's a kid's project and there's like a, a rotary saw blade that like flies out and severs a branch. I don't know why that was happening, but that was there. So I was like, oh, this could be that DVD could be like exploding. And like, um, yeah, that's so funny. I mean, to be fair, this was easier to cheat probably than that guy in your Constantine DVD trailer because like the animation was so lo-fi anyway that you could kind of get away with anything. But um, again, yeah, it's just taking those moments isolated and going, oh, this in the scene, you know, in the scene in the show, it's this, but like in our little thing that we're doing here, we can make it look like this. And it's an um, interesting way of thinking. So that's, yeah, so that's my first trailer and that's our DVD release trailers, um, which are kind of released, you know, they, they are related to what we do now um, in, in the, their trailers. <laughs> And the DVD release, but um, what was your first? Um, what was your first game trailer? So my first game trailer was at um, the anime t- DVD production house that I worked at. Coincidentally, again talking about DVDs, um, it's a trailer for uh, the Game Boy Advance game for Samurai Deeper Kyo, which is an anime that this company also released. Um, and I mean this this game trailer, it's. It does all a lot of it does a lot of the things that I say now just don't do, which is, uh, you know, talk about features, talk about the how many levels there are, how many weapons there are. Um, I mean, it starts off with just like uh, a character montage, just say like, "Hey, all the characters are here," um, and I was this this job was. You know, it's an editing job, but it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't a trailer house where they're working on like the Matrix next door. It was just a place where they're like, yeah, we need a trailer, so make it. And, you know, there wasn't, I wasn't really going to get like editorial feedback. So a lot of these jobs, I just look at like, well, I was just experimenting and messing around. I don't really consider these like good because I didn't have them like vetted by someone who's been doing this uh, for so many years. So this is sort of like my experimental phase of my career because. Uh, in, in a lot of ways, just working at the actual trailer house was just super intimidating. So I felt kind of paralyzed to do anything other than just my, my actual work, which was just, you know, non-creative sort of prepping tracks and stuff. When you then got to cut something, where, do you feel like you were working on instinct? Like it was a kind of like, I've seen stuff before, so I kind of think that they have cards and bit like, was it a kind of like, oh, this is what I need to do to accomplish selling this thing or to get all these features in, or this is kind of what these things look like? It was kind of like monkey see, monkey do. Like, I think now that I had this sort of creative freedom where I knew no one was going to criticize anything I did pretty much, um, that I'm like, okay, now I'm going to try to do all the things that I saw people do at the previous job. I'm going to put in all these trailer sound effects for like every single frame of this trailer. (laughs) 
and then I'm going to tr- prove myself I can do these motion graphics that I've been learning about from like tutorials online, you know, have tons and tons of accents and intercut the gameplay with the the anime footage and stuff and just like try to do like everything. Like I, I look at these trailers and I think, wow, this is a lot. You know, there's like speed ramps in here and all these sorts of like tricks to, you know, try to polish a turd basically. I mean, the game, it was fine. It's just like a Game Boy Advance action game. So it wasn't like terribly novel. It's just like, hey, hack and slash game, but with these characters you like. And I mean, I do all the things like I have title cards that say, with over 10 environments and nine boss battles and all these things. I just say, don't do that. Was that coming from the client though? Was that a script like features from the client or was that just you being like, there's 10 environments? Yeah, that was me looking at like back of the box details and be like, what do I have to work with? And I mean, I was like intercutting scenes from the anime to make it look sort of like, oh, this is the moment from the anime, but in the game. But I mean, it's a Game Boy Advanced game, so there's only so much that can actually look like uh, the anime. I was going to say that on the, um, so the footage is kind of 4-3 within a, within a frame. It's kind of doing that thing where people shoot vertical video and then it has a kind of uh, blurred, blurred version. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a picture-in-picture thing. Yeah, where the the main image is in the center of the screen, and then behind that is like a blurred out sort of color tinted version. Was that to make it putting it in a frame to kind of make the Game Boy Advance footage look better, or was that just the way you had it? Or um, I think yeah, it was just to make it look uh, a little bit cooler, or to just avoid making it full screen because I mean it's Game Boy Advance games, and also this trailer is released on the DVD releases that went out for this company, and then on YouTube, which, I mean, this this video was posted in 2007, and the highest quality uh, option here is 240p. <laughs> so I don't know how much better it would have looked if it had been blown up, but also I probably just saw it somewhere and thought, oh, that looks cool, I'll do that. Um, and then I have all this like text, which is sort of based off of the logo treatment of the game. It's like this red text with a white outline. I had like a, a glimmer over it. Um, and the music, I think, is just straight from the anime. And, you know, who knows if we were allowed to actually just use that, but we didn't care. So when you say when you say this does a lot of things that you now would tell people not to do, do you think that you kind of had to do it and realize that it wasn't successful to kind of to make that to make that leap or? Um... Yeah, I probably needed to get that out of my system to a degree, because I have some other trailers that I've made either as a fan trailer or for work that were still in this features heavy sort of uh, approach. But I mean, honestly, this sort of game, like I said, there isn't too much to it. So maybe if if like if I was going to critique my own work and say, okay, let's redo this one, uh, I would probably still talk about the different characters that you can play just because that's sort of like part of the the power fantasy or the wish fulfillment of I get to play this character that I like but like saying there's a whole bunch of environments it's not really necessary I mean just show them and the boss battles sort of the same just show them don't need to call it out necessarily but other than that like the actual editing I think I was also probably channeling either tv commercials or trailers I've seen for like I don't know like Nintendo games maybe back in the day on tv where they'd have like a licensed game which is for like a show or movie and then the intercut movie footage with the game footage. I, I feel like 
like a lot of this feels like my memory of 80s Nintendo commercials. So that could be partially where it's coming from. I mean, this, it, it feels to me kind of legit. I think you're right. This was a better, this was a time, you know, this was before games that, you know, had, had strong kind of narratives and stuff. So I, I wonder if it was a, it was a very kind of like, let's explain the features kind of time. And, you know, obviously even on other consoles at this time, like graphics weren't that great. So. Oh, actually, no, they were. Like, mid-2000s, yeah, I mean, they were They were better than this. Well, th- this was, like, the last Game Boy Advance game to ever come out um, because, uh, you know, they what it took to come out in the U.S. was a U.S.-based DVD company who, with people who worked there who cared enough about this property and this game to get it licensed and, and released. You know, it wasn't a game development or even a porting or localization house by nature. Just this one thing that I knew people at that company wanted to release. So it was an odd little thing. And your trailer didn't do anything to move the needle on that. I don't know. It has it has 16,000 views on YouTube uh, over the course of 14 years. So probably not so much. Not so much. That's not, you said that's not your highest view trailer to date. No, I'd say not. It has, let's see, it has eight comments from 12 to 13 years ago. A lot of people like the rhubarb and custard <laughs> DVD trailer. I, I, I could imagine so. And I could, I could imagine like being a kid and seeing that and thinking like, oh my God, I get the DVD that rhubarb and custard themselves made. I could totally see that happening. Yeah, it's the, the, the first of many lies. But so your other trailer you wanted to share was the 2006 trailer for Miss Potter. Yeah, so I'd kind of come in to early 2005. I was a takeoff for a while, did this, Miss, uh, did this rhubarb and custard trailer, did a lot of cut downs and stuff. But my first trailer trailer, um, was the UK trailer, I think. It's, I think the Weinsteins did a trailer for the US release that was structurally similar, but had different music and stuff. Um, so yes, the trailer for Miss Potter. And I've talked about this in the past before. I talked about mm, the trailer that I did for Mr. Turner and that they both start in a very different, uh, they start in the same way. Bunnies and jackets with brass buttons. However do you imagine such things? Mm. We will not sell a great number of copies, but I think we can turn a small profit. We would like to publish your little book, Miss Potter. And kind of what we were just talking about there, a lot of this was done by instinct because I hadn't really cut a long narrative trailer before. So I don't know whether I, it was instinct and I was just kind of going, okay, this is how it's going to lay out story-wise or whether I was aping other trailers that had done similar things. Um, I remember we worked, the Empire Design worked on the trailer for Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice around this time. And I, I worked on that trailer in terms of like overcutting it and and like helping with the effects and helping it get finished. And I, I remember kind of going in and like seeing how it was constructed and looking at the movie and seeing how that trailer was constructed with a very light comedic front and then a shift into drama at the end. And I think I definitely took some lessons from that. And I, I kind of stand by this trailer. Like, it happened as a happy accident. I remember going through Universal Production Music's website to find some music cues. And I did, and they were cheap, and they were usable, and they were, and they were kind of good. And then one of them sounded like an intro to me, so I put it on, and I had these, these guys, like, say oh you know we don't like your pictures or something miss potter and then like and then voiceover which is really interesting at the time because 
I guess we were still in the time of voiceover, or there was no question that we might try and tell the story with dialogue. I mean, we're, we're using dialogue alongside the voiceover, but again, I worked with the same copywriter as the Rhubarb and Custard trailer, and we kind of wrote this like, Beatrice Potter did this, but then this, but then this guy came in, and now experience the wonder. Like, it just kind of carried you through, and you didn't have to do all this heavy lifting because it was saying who she was and what she did and that she saw the world differently. And then, but then this guy came in and like, it was so kind of helpful. Um, and there's another Brit British acting stalwart there's John Sargent who does the voiceover who's in Gladiator and something. And that was another like moment of celebrity excitement when he came in for that. Beatrix Potter saw the world differently. Any more of that and I'll paint you out. But no one saw things her way. But I just remember, like, there was there was a lot of animation in the movie that I wanted to get in there, um, and that kind of magical fantasy. And I remember being so excited. The end cue. I start the end cue with the kind of mid-late of the end cue. Your father does not approve, and neither do I. I didn't want to marry a man simply because he was rich enough to take care of me. Mean? That's how never to be loved. And I remember just being kind of so excited that I could use music in a different way and be like, oh, I want this slightly different turn here. So I'll take this later bit of the cue and put it here. And then after that, like transition to an earlier point of the cue and kind of restart. And it was a really kind of exciting discovery that I could use music to shape things that way. Beatrix, you have a chance for happiness. Take it. Discover the remarkable story. This behavior shows scant regard for your father's mother. Well, one day I shall make enough money to my own. Of a woman whose imagination... My head is so full of stories. <laughs> ...inspired the world. Her daughter is famous, Helen. You're the only person who doesn't know it. I think I learned stuff from other editors. Like, there's a couple of accents in here, like when... You and McGregor and Rene Zellweger kind of hold hands and there's a bit of a music swell there. And that was, I think, someone coming in and saying, oh, you could reverse the music or you could reverse the shot here to make it look like she's kind of abashed at the, the kind of like he's touching her hand. And, and, um, and I definitely remember there was uh, our kind of creative director at Empire, a guy called Nick Wood, who cut the Pride and Prejudice trailer, definitely had a heavy influence on, on this. And... I had ID shots at the end and I only had like one shot and he was like, no, you can, you, you can definitely like use this as an opportunity to get like three beauty shots of Renate Zellweger in and really helped. Um, but there was something else organically that I came to and it's something that I keep talking about, crossfades. And I do a lot of like left, right crossfades in this. So there's like something happening in the on the right and then I would crossfade, but I wouldn't do a kind of straight crossfade I would kind of fade up something that's very kind of left in the frame, but leave the right thing up and then gradually take the right thing away. So it kind of like effect. So it was, it was kind of more organic and graphical the way it kind of transferred. And I remember really being really excited about doing that. And um, it kind of holds up. Annoyingly on YouTube, it's, uh, it's the video master that's 4% faster and everyone's pitched up. A semitone because they forgot to yeah, they forgot to um on the video master i think they so it's a really boring thing but when you cut on film at 24 frames a second and you do a video master at 25 frames a second the audio goes four percent faster because you have you basically lose a frame of video per sh uh, per second um and then usually to compensate the fact that everyone's speaking faster you would pitch them down 
so everyone would at least sound normal, but they forgot to do that for this. So everyone, everyone sounds like all the jokes are going a lot faster than they should be, and also everyone sounds very squeaky. You should, you should re-download it and then pitch shift it and change the speed yourself and r- restore it to its final version, because only you know exactly the, the pace that this trailer is supposed to be presented at. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty frenetic now. Um, and there were some other details that I remember, like some of the animation wasn't finished and I was thinking, oh no, can we get that animation shot finished? You know, where it's very like hand-drawn and temp and people were like, no, don't worry about it. No one will ever know that this isn't final VFX for the Miss Potter trailer. Meanwhile, there's some VFX artists like, oh no, it's not done, it's not finished. I know, Mr. Jeremy Fisher isn't finished yet. It's not ready. Um, Please watch the movie. But I think I think I learned a lot of lessons here. You know, narratively, kind of starting ambiguously. Obviously, voiceover was was a real big help. But kind of easing into the story and explaining who the character was, and and then doing a kind of second act of now. There's this thing which is going to change everything, and then a third act of like, oh, you know, and we're off there. And taking these lines, this like. Father, I must make my own path, which was actually like a totally normal conversation, but you put it at the end of the trailer and it seems like it's a really big um, moment. And I think I learned a lot in the process of doing it that has, you know, stuck with me to this to this day. And it holds up because often stuff that I've cut between that and this moment, I look back on and I'm like, oh, that at the time I thought this was really cool. Um, and it's not, but this this kind of holds up for me. <laughs> No, it totally does. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the narration, I think it also just works uh, on the level of, I mean, this is about a uh, person and storybooks. So, you know, why not have the trailer also have a narration, kind of like if they're telling you the story of this character, like if someone's reading a book to you. Say so it absolutely holds up. And the, the animation adds a little bit of uh, like fantastical, like whimsy. It's like, ooh, there's also some animation integration. So it's a little bit... Uh, little fantasy in a way or sort of dreamlike yeah the tone was very it was very easy and i think it was on my music set so i kind of heard these things and um was like oh you know tonally this kind of magical whimsy emotion drama kind of felt right and obviously music is the most important thing so the minute i had those cues i was like oh that's kind of holding my hand um actually interestingly nick the creative director there was a song in the film and I don't think it was character singing or maybe it was an end credit song or something but um and he had the idea to kind of take this song which was very sparse and orchestrally boost it and that actually didn't end up finishing in the trailer but that was like I think that was about 10 years before anyone considered like embellishing cues with an orchestra um so he was ahead of the curve but it, it never finished do you remember what version finished it was very close to the V1. I don't think the music ever changed. I don't think the intro ever changed. We definitely changed some some story bits. So I feel like it finished probably on like version six or something. But you know, there were no other trailer agencies in, so I didn't have to like um, change it uh, change it a lot. So yeah, so that's our first trailers, and um, everything has been uphill or downhill <laughs> from that point depending on um but uh, i i feel like there's a lot of lessons learned just by being thrown in at the deep end and having to cut something and like you said you know going from this agency where you kind of felt a bit 
you know, there, there were kind of heavy hitters and you felt a bit nervous to kind of go and then, and then getting the freedom to work on stuff. Like you can't underestimate, I think in both of these cases, we were given a chance to cut something and then a kind of sink or swim moment. And I think it seems that we both really responded to that task by trying to do something interesting and, and new and do a really good job and learn as we were going. And like you said, with the guy who was like, don't leave any dead air, like, you know, take on board everything and, and try and make the best thing possible. Um, and I think that, that that kind of thing is something that, that probably stays with us to this day. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly also helps that we had experience looking at other sequences from ex- more experienced editors. Um, I'm, I'm sure I must have just referenced uh, my memories or actual sequences that I'd seen before because it, it is, blank timeline's terrifying, but it's even more terrifying when it's your first like paid gig and there are people waiting on you to like finish a version by next week or something like that. People always say like, oh, is it painful looking back at your own work? Or, or people say that it is painful looking back at their own work. And I always get a little bit worried because a lot of times I look at my old work and think, no, that's pretty much the same way I do it now, which is probably not entirely true. But I, I don't often look back and think this is total garbage uh, I would improve everything here. This is all wrong. Usually I'm just like, no, this is pretty good, <laughs> which always worries me just a little bit. I'm like, shouldn't, shouldn't I say that it's all bad and terrible? But I'm like, no, it's fine. I don't know. I mean, the thing about trailer editing in general is like, you have to invest so much of yourself in it that at the point where you're cutting it, you honestly have to believe that it's the best you're capable of. So it would be pretty sad to look back on everything and go like, actually, oh God, no, that was terrible. That thing that I really believed in and I was really proud of at the time um, actually wasn't that great. All right, so that is our episode about the first trailers we ever cut and finished. If you would like, please send your questions to cutdown at idlethumbs.net and we are on Twitter at cutdowncast and I am at Derek underscore Lou. And I'm at Rick Thomas. We're a part of the Idle Thumbs Network. You can join us on the Idle Thumbs forums if you'd like to discuss this week's episode. And also, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you can leave reviews for podcasts and tell your friends about the the podcast uh, if they also enjoy movie and game trailers and trailer editing topics. And we also want to give a thank you to our friends at Twisted Jukebox for our intro music. Thanks for listening. Coming soon to DVD. (laughs) 